This has been um, such a wonderful retreat. Just can't uh, say it enough and how wonderful it has been to be here with you. And there's a kind of um, symmetry to the beginning and end of a retreat in terms of uh, the Buddhist teaching on generosity. So um, I don't expect you all to remember the first night's talk, (laughs) but (laughs) uh, the Buddha described generosity as like the um, foundation of the spiritual home. Of our, you know, we make ourselves into a spiritual home, um, and so the generosity being the foundation—it's it, so um, important. So, in this context, I just wanted to add a little bit in. Um, about the tradition of dana and that it's helpful to kind of hear not only what the, that it is a tradition but what the tradition is so for almost 2600 years uh, the teachings have not been um, have been given or offered generosity right offered freely Um, And basically it's important to take that in on a deep level, like that every monk, every nun, every lay person for 2,600 years, anyone teaching has never charged. And so... (laughs) um, how could we possibly charge? It's like, it would be so unbelievably unthinkable. It would be such a betrayal of each person who put food in a nun's bowl. Yeah? It's just that, that's how profound it is for me. It would be feel... um, It just it's just unthinkable. So sometimes the the Dhamma or the truth, it's called the pearl of no price. And it's considered so valuable, so precious, so valuable that you could never put a price on it. And this isn't modern, like this isn't like um, a culture, a modern culture. These are ancient cultures that, are, that have said you cannot put a price on this. And that does not mean it's cheap. <laughs> or we might as well put the golden arches out there. McDonald's. <laughs> <laughs> So it's really, you know, it's something... um, (laughs) (laughs) How I like to say it is just in one more sentence. Um, 
but I mean it very deeply. It's better not to find the Dhamma than to sell it. I think it's much better not to find it than to sell it because it just makes it into another commodity. So I wanted to, um, a lot of people asked about bowing and, um, you know, each of these vignettes that I'm offering are really something that we could talk for hours about. But um, because I'm talking about generosity right now, you can think of bowing as uh, an offering. It's an offering... um, a full bow is meant to be a, a full offering of your body and mind. It's very beautiful. It's like the whole offering of your body and mind. Um, Anjali is the word for the a bow that you put your hands together at your heart center. And you don't even have to move. You just go like this. It's a greeting. It's um, a gesture of reverence or awe. I think that um, what I appreciated when I started being around um, the meditation masters that there was more bowing happening. No one ever told me I should bow. Nobody asked me to bow. It was never a requirement to, to be get offered the teachings to bow. Um, so for me, <clears throat> initially when I would bow, I, w- I love flowers so much, I would bow to the flowers. And it was so easy. Um, I didn't grow up with a Buddha statue, and so for me that wasn't... Um, <clears throat> that. It didn't really make so much sense for me. But when I started um, having more uh, powerful practice, there were times when I would just bow. I would put my forehead on the earth. It would feel like so natural. It would just be to thank the earth uh, that that profound. And so it, it became easy for me to make that full offering of body and mind. And then the years I've spent in um, Asia, I think that I've come to understand the bowing in a, in a more traditional form, which is um, traditionally you, you make three bows to the Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. But again, it's, um, it's really meant to be something that you understand about the Buddha. In, in most Buddhist countries, the bow to the Buddha is to a, a, an actual historical human being. Uh, for a lot of people that don't have that sense of reverence, it's, it's bowing to being f- awake. You know, and again, this could be a whole talk just on that, but the, the bowing to the Dhamma is bowing to the truth. 
that pearl of no price. And the third, bowing to the Sangha. It can be the community of monks and nuns. It can be to everyone practicing together. Um, It can be to all beings everywhere. So, you know, again, I found that over the years, um, you know, and honestly, there were times when I would bow and it would really help my back. <laughs> and I'd be like, "Wow, this is great!" You know, I just so so. There's there's so many levels to it that you can appreciate that you don't have to feel like guilty about. It's like, gosh, that's such a good tradition. <laughs> Three times every time you sit, the beginning and end, you get a pretty good stretch, right? Um, but really, seriously, the um, that connecting, the, that being close to the earth, the full, you know, laying on that earth, it's, it's like um, when I would have to bow to the trailing arbutus, the flower to smell it, it's so deep and it's, there's such awe and wonder and reverence in it. My experience has been over the years that as I understand what wisdom is and what compassion is, the more I understand what I'm bowing to. So the deeper, deeper your understanding, the more the deep the understanding with the bow. One of, um, there are many places I can go with this, but one of the things I used to love about um, when I first took care of Mahasi Sayadaw when he came here to teach. Um, when he would give a Dhamma talk, he would always give the talk behind a fan. You know, and uh, some of my teachers in Burma would always give the talk behind the fan. That's, that's the way that it was always done. It's only recently that it's not done behind a fan. And the idea of that is that it's a palm leaf you know, an old-style palm leaf fan. But the idea is that that, um, it's not a personality that's giving the talk. It's like this wisdom is giving the talk, the compassion is giving the talk. And so when you would would bow to a teacher, uh, traditionally, again, you're not bowing to a personality. You're bowing to their wisdom and their compassion and there were, there were many times with Sayadaw Upandita when he would walk in the hall and I would be feeling um, a lot of gratitude to him as he was walking by. He would seem to know, like when I was doing it, and he would just put the fan up between me and him. <laughs> and it was so powerful. Just like, he's like, don't, it's not, it's not, it's not a personality. It's not meant to be a, a personality cult or a charismatic um, approach. Which we can be in danger of. So the fan protects the students, but it protects the teacher. Teacher. 
one of the things I appreciated about years in Burma was to see that what is different often culturally is that um, I would always have the sense in the village where we um, have all these years at the monastery that it was just like the Buddha came by yesterday. It was that timeless. It was just really like, wow, he just like walked by, you know. And it, that there was that just that scent of the Buddha was still around. Uh, no time has passed. And so in the winter, when it's cold, most of the places you go when you see a Buddha, people have put a blanket around the Buddha. It's a, it's a personal relationship. It's like they brush his teeth sometimes. No, really, they, you know, it's like, it's really different. Really different. And I think that's, I'm offering that mainly because it's like if you don't feel anything when you see a Buddha statue, well, of course you don't. We didn't grow up with like having that sense that he's, he's still sitting here. If you do, great. It's a karma. It's great. But it's also to know that we have to find our own meaning with it. Or not. Right? It's like, I think that um, one of my favorite descriptions of maybe more of a modern uh, educated bow would be <laughs> uh, Barry Lopez is a great in, uh, environmental writer and he did a book about the Arctic his time up there and he had a description of watching this extraordinary sunset and um, he had his hands in his pockets and he had that he had that sense of reverence and awe and he just did this teeny little bow you know and I kind of think of us as more like we're so casual you know we'd rather come in and just have our hands in our pockets right and just kind of go barely visible you know because it's you get on that floor and you got to feel some humility. This is, if you're not getting more humble in this practice, it's not working. I like to remind us all that the word in English, goodbye, used to mean God be with you. But we must have gotten in such a hurry <laughs> that we just kind of lost the meaning, right? You know, and that, but that's, that's so tragic. What if we did say that in our own way? It doesn't have to be the word God, but just that sense of like, just that that, that would have been a... a a casual way of speaking to each other when we said goodbye, what is lost in that? That that reverence, that awe, that wonder, that mystery. That um, deep respect for someone, for their spiritual side of them.
there's a um, teacher named Sun Roshi who was born 1907 and died in 1984. And he said, all beings are flowers blossoming in the universe. And I, uh, this is uh, what he said about bowing. There are so many pleasures in life. Cooking, eating, sleeping, every deed of everyday life is nothing else but this great matter. Realize this. So we extend tender care with a worshiping heart, even to such things as beasts and birds, but to insects too, okay? (laughs) Even to grass, to one blade of grass, even to dust, to one speck of dust. Sometimes I bow to the dust. When I pick up one particle of dust, all nations are united. All that in one bow. What understanding. That's so... That's like an inclusive, inclusive reverence that's so powerful and so wise. This is from Maria Montessori, the great educator from Italy. Our attitude toward the newborn child should be one of reverence that a spiritual being has been confined within limits perceptible to us. So, the, you know, that is the question when we have that Anjali, that moment of hello, goodbye, but it's that sense of deep respect for this heart, the spiritual heart that we all have. In terms of um, the way that San Roshi describes bowing and just that realizing, cooking, eating, that just that sense of how we go through life, uh, washing dishes, brushing our teeth, working, all the, all the activities of the day, I really treat them now with the practice of um, Suki Atanam Pariharantu. I say it a lot as I do dishes or brush teeth or, you know, anything I'm doing. It's like understanding that that, that suki atanam pariharantu, that phrase means really experiencing the goodness of taking care of yourself. Receiving the goodness of taking care of yourself but taking care of others. It's like, it's such an antidote for our world these days. And to, um, there's, it's like we need these little phrases sometimes. It might not be that, but something to just, it's like a touchstone to come back to, you know, more anchors to just um, stay in touch with our goodness. 
I think this time period um, on our planet uh, requires um, that determination to not have our goodness taken away from us. And so you have to understand that that's happening and that you need to work hard to hold on to it. That needs to be a daily practice. And the word apamada, apamada, carefulness, is part of that. that, that to remember that if you just slow down a little bit somewhere once in a while and just stop, stop, monk, stop, but just stop the busyness, stop and, and have some carefulness with something, that that leads to receiving life and gratitude and reverence. Because it's so easy to lose it. And you just can't put it on a list. You know, we put a list, shop, you know, whatever. And then it's like gratitude, reverence. You know, it's like we don't do it. We don't put it on the list. And it's sad. So I'd like to stop for a bit and then we're going to do a duet. We didn't plan it out. Um, So, you know, we'll be weaving back and forth between some of the material. Um, I think so many of us leave retreat with this kind of dual aspect of us you know, a sense of our capacity at times to touch into this gratitude, the sense of connection, appreciation of our own goodness, the goodness of others, even if it's fleeting at times. And, you know, have wonders and worries and plans about how do we, how do we integrate it, you know, for ourselves, um, for the world, and and I do want to continue to highlight the piece around around this tradition. You know, what is our capacity and responsibility around that? Um, the the folks who I learned spoon carving from that lineage. Um, actually also starts one part of it in India where a man named Richard Gregg went to um, study under Mahatma Gandhi and uh, was kind of one of the first Westerners to really kind of tune in and and get the value of of Gandhi's message and um, to try to be a vehicle for that uh, back in the West and to propagate these notions of nonviolence on a big scale. And when he left, Gandhi gave him a cutting of this pear tree 
um, and asked him to plant it the next place he went. And where he landed was um, in northern Maine at the farm of Helen and Scott Nearing, who were some of the first really kind of back-to-the-land uh, pioneers in, in this country who had spent um, many years, Helen, um, studying with Krishnamurti and really working on a lot of like inner powerful work, and Scott as a communist organizer and professor who ended up getting you know kicked out and banished from the institutions and so they started this kind of process of of relearning how to tend to land and how to you know create organic um, produce, but it's not just produce, right? It's like a way of life and a ethic around work and ownership and exploration and fairness and um, spiritual integrity that essentially all, all the organic, sustainable, all these local farmers markets that you have now in this country are totally dependent on the fact that these people did this and propagated these notions. And this tree... Um, grew there, and at some point, the my spoon carving teacher uh, was very close with Helen Nearing and was up there helping. And he met a man there named Bill Copperthwaite, who uh, was part of that same circle and had this ethics of inspired by Gandhi also to the, the when Gandhi was teaching people to produce their own salt, to weave their own um, fabric as a s- empowerment and independence from uh, colonial forces. That he took this aspect and trans- had brought his element to it and his lineage of, of how that anybody could carve a wooden spoon. Anybody could carve a wooden bowl. And that it was a very powerful act of dignity and resistance to consumerism and and of and not just resistance, but actually of coming back into a sense of capacity with our own hearts and minds and bodies. And the beauty of that and the inspiration of that for how many of us have lost that sense of ability to create something. And so from that tree, he carved a spoon and gave that spoon to my spoon carving teacher and taught him how to carve his own spoon and the the only rules he gave him afterwards were two that once now that he had this skill that um that he makes sure that if he ever carves another spoon that that he either use it or give it away but that he never sell a spoon that he created and that ethic was passed down to me as part of the lineage. And um, it's amazing what a powerful commitment that has been, actually, for me, right? This, uh, because, because of the ways we're conditioned and trained in this world, this sense of, oh, you learn a new skill and you can make something beautiful. And then where do we feel value in that? And how, how is our sense of that value reflected in our r- relationships with other people? And so much of the way that it's reflected in this culture is through money, right? That, that that's how we identify and honor value. And 
to take this action outside of those relations, right? To, to understand that it's like when I'm making something that I know I won't sell it and that, and that I don't own it. And that it's, it's, there, it's beyond like, you know, the, that relationship that I have a certain amount of responsibility and vision for this thing in this moment. But, you know, mostly what I end up making are baby spoons, you know, for friends who are having kids. And so there's just this, like, just such a beautiful process of, you know, knowing that this child will be born and working on this spoon and knowing where the wood is from, right? That it's from this yard or it's from when I was in Massachusetts or Vermont or California or wherever. And, and knowing the lineage of the spoon, knowing the lineage of the creation of it. And thinking about this child's life and our hopes, of course, our dreams, our concerns, our fears, and, and putting that into it. And then to give it away, you know, to give it freely, without any expectation of use or of um, outcome. It is, it's so powerful. It's so beautiful. It's such a relief. It, it's like the, the, the value in my own heart for that is, it would, it, would, it would feel like such a diminishment to myself to try to sell it. There was a time even where I... Um, uh, I'm involved also in a, a traditional uh, Hawaiian form of weaving of a lauhala. It's a kind of like almost like a palm. Um, and so they were, you know, part of that community is doing auction and, you know, trying to raise money for the next year's thing. And so you could offer something for the auction, you know. And so I had just made this little bowl um, and you had to fill out like, well, what's the price, you know, what's the value of it, you know. And it was like this like hour of like sweating and like the stress of like, I have no idea, you know, like, do I measure it in terms of like wage per, I mean, how many hours they put into it? It's like you, no one could afford this bowl, right? If it really, you know, you know, never mind all the hopes and dreams that were in it, you know, um, and I just realized like, God, what a, what a dukkha that was. And really, um, I would just really try never to do that again, you know, because um, it was so painful. And that there is something really, you know, very resonant for me that has helped clarify my relationship with these teachings and this Dhamma of understanding more also this this commitment to generosity in it and this commitment to non-ownership and, and how any sense of like it's something being me or mine and that I can sell it to you and that this exchange of paper as a representation of, you know, human labor is somehow um, has anything to do with this and that there's any way for that to not be a diminishment of each of of whatever relationship that's in. And just to understand, like, the truth should be free. The truth is free. And to, to deny that internally or in a relationship is toxic. And so there's a part of it that's, like, honoring the tradition, you know, to really get that, you know, we do hope that this was a value to you, right? That, that like, there, there were things that you learned here that are going to help you in your process of being 
a better person and making a better world in whatever way that that, you know, that that manifests. And then we hope you share that, you know, it's like the goodness of that, uh, you know, whatever teachings, whatever feels meaningful to you and whatever sort of skillful way it might be. Of course, it's like anything, it's not ours, you know, it's, 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 its natural way is to flow. And that to really take, you know, that, that not only is it a betrayal of the tradition and the lineage to start selling it, and not only is it like definitely a curse you're putting on yourself, <laughs> but you're denying yourself like this beautiful like the most beautiful heart nourishing uh gift you know of the sense of like oh to be able to give to be able to give the truth freely to be able to offer it and to transform actually our human relationships outside of just exchange and to not you know this like the truth doesn't get anything besides the truth right this quote from Srinivasagadatta that i've just misquoted um <laughs> you know it's to have faith in that and the goodness of that and what a relief it is, you know? <laughs> and try to find it somewhere. Mm. And, it, and it, it is why it's so powerful, partly, to, to keep our relationship with, with our own lineage and our tradition and to go to Burma every year as, as difficult as that continues to be in different ways, you know? And the sense of, of really getting that... Um, none of this would exist. None of us would have this if, if it hadn't been fr- freely given to us, right? And people hadn't been freely offering all this time, you know, and to support it and to, for a culture and a people to take responsibility for that, you know, and how important that is. It's so, it's so, it, it, you can't even, you know, it's so pervasive, it's so important, it's so beautiful, especially in a place where, you know, for so long the, the, the government wasn't functional in terms of any infrastructure or schools or hospitals or roads. And it was like the monasteries and nunneries and many villages that were doing all of that, were providing education, were providing schools, were providing hospitals, were providing employment for people, were implying, uh, you know, in, in construction and road building. You know, it's like the... And that it all came from just freely offered you know, money, time, effort, vision. So beautiful. And how beautiful to choose to be a part of that lineage, to honor that and to bear the responsibility and the weight of it. so much of, of Pari's talk, that reminder of just like how much rejoicing there is in giving, you know, and, you know, yeah, putting names and, you know, Mr. This and Mrs. This and, you know, just like these names everywhere of like the, the rejoicing and the, the shared effort, right? The communal effort that there's no, there's no obfuscating that because it's, it's recognized it's important to get. This wasn't just one person's doing, Right, this was a community effort. This place was built, this road was built, this bathroom was raised, you know, uh, by a community. And how important that is for our understanding of how things actually work, right? 
this sense of our interdependence, our um, the necessity we have of one another's goodness to survive. Fred Ingalls wrote, freedom is dependency acknowledged. And I think there's something really important about that in the Buddha's teaching of really getting that freedom isn't this independence that we sometimes, I think, can convolute it of, especially in kind of Western sort of mind state. That how is that? How can freedom be dependency acknowledged? What does that mean in our day-to-day activities, our day-to-day lives? And so I do think that, like, to understand, you know, the spoon carving thing, it's not like, you know, I, I'm very skeptical about, you know, the, like, it would be easy to be like, spoon carving is meditation, right? There are metaphors that are helpful, but it's different, too, right? It's actually not meditation, you know? It's, <laughs> you're making something, and you need a little bit of, like, control and vision, and it's not just, you're not just whittling a log away, you know? Um, <laughs> Even making chopsticks, you have to be much more thorough about that. You know, it's not just, you know, it's like it takes, uh, it's a different process. But it's an important process around understanding where does the meditation practice start to, start to relate to our doing, right? And that this is something very important in terms of how we start to enter the world. And, and what is it about these sort of little miniature actions of activity and where our sense of responsibility and ownership and stress and control and love and compassion, wisdom, you know, where are these things playing out on this very subtle level in relationship to our doing? And then what is it producing? And what are the boundaries and commitments and containers we make around the product of our activity, whether it's a piece of art or our job to whatever degree we have control over that um, or food, you know, or music or holding space or, you know, where, where may we really think about how we're cultivating our own goodness and cultivating the sense of connection and honoring this lineage, not just in terms of Dhamma and Dhamma institutions, but in the world, right? Of like, oh, that this goodness has a nature of wanting to move outward, right? And that, that amazingly, it's not diminished by moving outward that it grows the more we give, right? The more we love, the more we feel love. And how incredible that is. And how compelling that is. And actually how good it feels. The sense of actually, we, th- that's like this incredible bonus, right? That actually even feels better to be generous and to be kind and to be, you know, trying to help. And then I think, you know, we are, to recognize we are in an important time in this tradition and this, some of these methods, some of these skills, some of these tools and teachings where there is a dance. You know, we're not, this is not Burma, this is not Thailand, Sri Lanka, Laos, right? Cambodia, the sort of nations where this Theravadan lineage has been rooted for so long. 
There are different dynamics of social relations here that are, you know, of course require some adjustment, but also how do we honor that? How do we explore that together as a community and find ways of, of deepening our commitment to the lineage and to honoring Dana and honoring generosity and honoring the viability of that and also getting that there may be places where, yeah, the dynamics of that may shift, may need to change, but that we're creative about it. We don't just fall back onto the sort of alienating relationships that are so ingrained in how we relate to any commodity, you know, as Michelle said. And to get, you know, that people are stretching, you know, and it's like, of course, we, you know, don't, get paid for our activities. It's a, even the staff here, even now, you know, they're, uh, they're on payroll way, in a way that they weren't when Michelle started, right? Where it was really volunteer and maybe you got a little stipend here and there Never, or not, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, some of those things have had to shift and there's an institutional, but, but people aren't getting paid that much here. You know what I mean? Like, get, you, it's like they're, you know, and, and there's a care for them and getting taken care of, but the sense of like really getting that most of these institutions are, are, have people that are really stretching in them. And to be thoughtful about what is your role in, in supporting the Dhamma in the long run, right? The institutions, the people, the, the relationships, it's very important, you know? And to get part of the, to be, to be real in this worldly way for a minute, and I'll try to contain it to that. <laughs> you know, there, there is a, um, there's a way that in Burma, a monastery really is, has a sense and a dedication to being responsible for their monks and nuns. Right, that they're a sanctuary, a refuge, a place of support for them, and that is mostly not the case in the West. You know, that if you can imagine this entire place, like the whole program of this place, is offered by people who they don't have to pay. Like if you can imagine a university like that, where like the professors just they don't get paid, and like how amazing that is, and actually how beautiful a honoring that is coming from, and the. And the kind of strangeness of that and and the dynamics of that, right? And to say that it's like we all have a responsibility to figuring this out, you know, with each other and how to do that. And um you know, we just, we, we care so much about trying to protect it and feel the importance of that, that um, we want to keep stretching, we want to keep stretching together of how to figure out how to make this work. You know, I, I put on that thing, you know, I've, so I've just finished a book, right? And, um, or in, in the finishing pieces of it. And that, like, that was just a cool process. Like this, if it weren't for the spoons, if it weren't for this tradition of like, oh, right. Like, I'm not going to sell it. Are you crazy? No way. You know? And just like, I'm so excited about that. You know? It's like, oh, I'm going to just give it away. 
and how beautiful it is and right. This sense of like, gosh, that's, um, are we all creating the conditions under which that faith that we have is um, protected and bolstered and supported, right? That it really is all of our responsibility for that not just for us or these teachers, us up here, but like in the long run, right? Wherever you choose to sort of get a sense of what is your responsibility to your local sangha, right? To the closest center you have to you, to what talks you're listening to online. Like, is there a way that you understand that like we have a responsibility um, as the inheritors of this action to keep producing and uh, committing to the generosity of this lineage in this tradition so that the golden arches don't go up, you know. There's a, um, I always loved how um, at this Chazua monastery, Saida Ulakana on the last night, you know, at the end of his talk, he would say, and now, you know, Saida has a special Dhamma gift for everyone. And it would be another half hour of his talk. Uh, <laughs> you remember that? It was so good. And he'd be like, we were like, okay. <laughs> like, <laughs> he talked about Nibbana and the progress of insight, and he was just like so enthusiastic, you know? Mm. Right. The detail of like Nama Rupa and. And it was just like, oh, yay, like the Dhamma. Mm. (laughs) We'll see if we keep you here much longer. But there is, you know, I have a little Dhamma gift, and it's not that long, but um, uh, it's, um, I'll put these out under the bulletin board, but um, there, I got inspired last last time I had to vote. Um, with the little stickers they give you, you know, I voted. And anyway, it seems like we're in like eternal voting season. <laughs> so um, for our entry back into the world, anyone who'd like one, please take them. There are a few different designs. They just say, "I note it." <laughs> <laughs> and i just will say you know this thing it's like it's meant to be happy it's meant to be light it's meant to be good it's not like this sense of like our you know this like oh it's awkward and the way like donna talk and feel like you know um pbs fun drive you know it's like (laughs) oh god you know another fucking like oh jeez but you know there is something important and I, i you know i grew up in a household where there was a huge poster much bigger than the buna of um emiliano zapata and it just had his intense face huge you know on the wall and underneath it it just said it was a question he asked he said what are you doing to defend the conquest to which we give our lives
And I think that charge is, is relevant, right, to our tradition, to understanding there's something revolutionary about this process. And that if we are the benefits of, beneficiaries of it and the heirs of that goodness and we're committed to it and understand that there are people now and there have been people for the last 2,600 years and actually far before that that have totally committed their lives to freedom, to understanding this, right? To human dignity in whatever way we may encounter it. And this, this sense of what are we willing to do to defend what has been attained, to defend the integrity of it, and to take our part and our share of that inheritance and um, propel it forward. We, we um, will take some questions tomorrow about going back out in the world, but um, as we said, that there's some vignettes that we felt like it was helpful to offer tonight. And one of them I just wanted to just remind us all that um, the Buddha said that the, the proximate cause for the appearance of compassion in this world is being connected with the helplessness and the overwhelm that we feel in the face of suffering. And I think sometimes when we're, you know, about to embark on back in the world, there's that, um, the four worldly conditions that we meet as human beings, joy and sorrow or pleasure and pain, um, gain and loss, Uh, fame and disrepute and praise and blame that these are the things we all share as as, um, human beings Uh, and and the the kind of um, hard side of those gain and loss yeah just that one or praise and blame we know the ones that we prefer, right? And the ones that are so hard. Uh, but that just to remember that most of us are conditioned to think that the feeling of helplessness is bad or the feeling that of overwhelm is bad. And actually the Buddha taught that it was our ticket to experiencing compassion. That if we don't feel it, we can't get to compassion. So I, I know again when we often when we have to go out in the world, um, we have to be very careful, <laughs> and we'll talk about that s- tomorrow. But just to remember that if you start to feel overwhelmed, that it's a good thing, that you can s- just wake up with it to say, "Oh, I actually uh, this can help me remember to practice compassion." 
So it can either lead to aversion to pain, right, or fear, or compassion. So it's to 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 know that we transform these, <clears throat> we can transform these difficult um, experiences we have in the face of pain, and know we can um, shift it to compassion or the equanimity. Things are as they are. So that that's just the one reminder that, of course, it can. Um, it, it can also shift into hopelessness and despair or cynicism. But we're offering you to really pay attention to that place where it starts to go into overwhelm and know that you actually have a tool. And a tool that needs to be sharpened daily. <laughs> or it gets rusty. <laughs> And the other one, you know, this is maybe a little intense, but um, we haven't talked about forgiveness, and we might be able to be a bit tomorrow, but just to um, to understand and know when you do these practices, it, it, as you all know, it, it comes up, the unresolvable aspects of our lives and the ways that um, we see where uh, we feel that sense of regret about something and that um, we're hurt uh, we've caused harm or someone or some being has caused us harm and we go it's a very deep process these retreats and how purifying that can be Uh, and I just wanted to offer that uh, there are some things that are really easy to forgive and they're important to, to practice and to work with because there are some things that are really hard to forgive and then, then we get into the territory of shoulds, like I should be able to. Uh, just, just again, with anything, when we leave a retreat, be careful of I should be less reactive. Sometimes when we leave a retreat, we're so sensitive, we feel more reactive at first. You know, it's just to, just to be careful of any of those shoulds and to... I wanted to offer a story, and it is a bit sobering, but it's, it's one of those, as hard as it gets... Genocide. And um, I met this man um, a few years ago where um, he grew up in Rwanda and he was Tutsi. And I have to shorten the story quite a bit, but it's just... um, There were some Hutus. Most of us know the Rwanda story, so I won't go into it. But the Hutus were about to kill him and his family. And a neighboring Hutu family um, hid them and saved them and took care of them. And uh, it was so uh, meaningful and moving to hear that part of the story. And then he felt um, able he was given this amazing scholarship to come to America and study at the university in D, uh, Washington, D.C. So he felt that his family was going to be okay because of these neighbors and the protection they felt. And then time went on, and the, um, I like to say it well... Um, The Hutu-led, the Hutu-led government uh, um, went to that family 
and told them that if they killed his family, they would get their land. And they did. While he was in America studying, the neighbors that saved his family killed his family. And I was having lunch with this guy, and I was just like, I couldn't even eat. I was like, oh my God. Like, and he said that for years he worked with this rage and anger at, at this family that he knew so well. He, he was hidden by them. They were like family. And um, he said that the anger got so unbearable and crippling, he knew he had to put it down. And he did. And he said to me, this is, and I've heard this, I've seen this in myself and in other people who've gone through, you know, trauma, that um, it was actually harder to forgive than to go through the experience. And that's that's what I wanted to offer, just, you know, I know it's a little bit sobering, but it's important that there are places that aren't as resolved in us. It's human. And, um, and just to know that sometimes it's because it'll feel too hard. And what's hard is that it's harder than the actual original event or events. And to, to understand that so that you can be careful and pace and not have this sense or should. Or for myself, I saw over years that sometimes I would be able to forgive but then it would come back and I'd think, oh, I guess I didn't. But actually, and then I would minimize it, but I would see that each time there was a new level of it and more freedom with it, but that it, it was taking a long time. And that that's okay. We tend to have again this thing that, oh, if it comes back, it means something that it didn't, it, it wasn't um, authentic or that it didn't work. But actually I saw the opposite, that each time it was taking more hold and more hold, but it was like transplanting uh, a plant that it was taking, instead of it taking completely right away, it was taking years to kind of really take hold. And then I would see that it would. And to me that's the ultimate generosity in this world, really, that, you know, we know we can cause anybody who's born human, we make mistakes. And at this last retreat, self-retreat I did, I joked about this in one group, but, you know, the uh, science miles per hour, like 20 miles per hour, I call them uh, mistakes per hour. (laughs) (laughs) And if you're honest, it's like, you know... John Lennon, you know, he said, love is forgiving each other every five minutes. Every five minutes. And it it requires um, such strength. That's what I'm trying to get across, that it takes such strength, such spiritual strength. And sometimes we can. And just like with everything we're offering, it's like, when you can, great. When you can't, great. Both are good practice, and you just see that I don't have the energy, which means I don't have the courage, which means I don't have the interest, which means what? 
that we rest, that we anchor, that we, we trust that we're going to build up the energy again so that we can do it. And it isn't personal, just like that fan. And so we, we carry the teachings forward. What, what I see as Donna is really that when I offer anything, that I'm carrying the tradition, I'm carrying the, I'm supporting the Dhamma through time. Not personalities. But that it's important, as Jesse says, to, to, to know where we are in that and how um, that's what does carry it forward. That, again, the Buddha's teaching that it is, everything is generosity. The breath is, we're given, we're given air, we're given water, we're giving earth. We're borrowing earth, air, and water to have a body. It's like it's all, it's all given. We're very lucky. Yeah. Just to say, you know, I know that there's um, a charge to what we're offering this evening. And I think um, none of us here, I think, have any uncertainty about how hard it is in the world and and how peculiar and rare these kinds of conditions are to have for this period of time, you know, to, to have this protected space for the beautiful work that we're doing. And there's always that question of, well, how does this relate to my life back home? And how does this integrate? And, you know, there's always a lot of hardship, a patience needed about how long the meditation practice takes to integrate in these sort of subtle moments of decision and, uh, action in the world, but that important, the most fundamental thing again, just from that first night to now, of like it's not just about meditation, right? It, that this spiritual path is dana, sila, bhavana, generosity, ethical conduct, and the mind cultivation, and that the that the the from so many of the stories we've told either tonight or in the last week of Angulimala, it's like to really understand that you have to be able to have some anchor to your own goodness and to goodness in the world in order to be able to survive the inundation, to be able to not just succumb to bitterness and and total despair and despondency. Right? We have to be honest about what we see, be honest about that clarity and the pain of all the dukkha. Not, even if we can't be with the intensity of it all the time, to also not deny it, right? To not, not to deny that it's true. And then we take responsibility where we can for cultivating the good internally, externally, to being restrained in causing harm. And that that gives not only perhaps a chance for actually the world, but a chance for our own spiritual development, right? To be able to keep using all of the spectrum of joy and sorrow as fuel for our understanding and the purification of our hearts. We can do it. We have some time for walking in the...
you have the bell. <laughs> We're going to sit for 10 seconds. <laughs> it's part of the integration. <laughs> May we be safe and protected from inner and outer harm. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.